0: There's a lot to learn in this book. and 70 years, are not going to give me time to preach it. Before I was ordained, the fear that always was in my mind, number one fear of being a pastor, I won't know what to preach on every Sunday. As I've told you, I've got a file at home, thick enough to keep me busy. For years, there is so much in God's Word. Look at the book of Hebrews. I'm rushing through it so fast. We could be going much slower. I would enjoy it. But I don't want to become tedious in this study. I want it to be fresh and new. And one way to do that is to cover lots of new ground every time we open the book. So let's turn to Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, let's review briefly. I'm going to do that as we go through this book. I don't want you to forget what we've learned. For me simply to preach and to have you forget it, by the time we get to the end, I might as well not have preached it. You need to remember... The things we've learned. I spent one whole sermon, a good 90 minutes preaching, preaching to you on an introduction of the book of Hebrews. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? The apostle Paul did. And we proved that from a variety of places. To whom was the book of Hebrews written? Hebrew believers. Most important. Jews that had already followed Christ, already been baptized, already in his kingdom, already members of his church and churches. But the Apostle Paul is writing to them to encourage them not to go back to Judaism. That theme if you don't get that and have that burned into your memories, the book of Hebrews will be partially closed to you. When you have that there, it just opens up. Opens up to you when you keep that in mind. This book is written to believing Jews lest they let the things slip that they've heard and go back to Judaism. And remember the great temptation there was to go back to Judaism. They had the true worship of God. They knew they worshiped the living God of heaven and earth. They knew they had God's temple. They knew they had God's word. They knew they had God's priests. They knew they had God's sacrifices. And all of it was very glorious. I mean, if you stood at that temple, and it was considered the eighth wonder of the world at that time. It was beautiful. So, Covered with so much gold that you could not look at it in the full blaze of the sun. That is what historians tell us about it. Absolutely beautiful. Herod was the one that made it so glorious. Zerubbabel's temple was a pitiful replacement for what Solomon had built, but Herod kept adding to it until it was a beautiful structure. And these people would walk into that great structure. You know, they took Jesus there to show him the temple. said, so look at this beautiful thing. They had that temple. They knew that God was worshipped there with His Word by His priests, the Levites. Can you imagine being a Jew and having all that I mean, as a child, you heard all the stories about Abraham, about Moses, about David, about Solomon, about Zerubbabel, and all the others. And then along came Jesus of Nazareth. No reputation, nothing to attract you to him, didn't have much, much going for him. He did some miracles. You knew about that, but he was poor. He didn't come from much in the way of lineage. He didn't overthrow the Romans when he came. He just wandered around with a bunch of fishermen, publicans, tax collectors, and harlots, prostitutes. And the last time you saw him, he was hanging on a cross and he died and he was buried. Remember, not everyone saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, only specially chosen witnesses, about 550 of them. The last time you saw Jesus of Nazareth, He was hanging on a cross. Would you be tempted to go back to Judaism? Because to follow that lowly Jesus of Nazareth meant that you were thrown out of that temple. You lost that worship of God. You were ostracized from your own nation and you knew the nation of the Jews was God's nation. That was a terrible dilemma for these Jewish Christians. So along comes the most qualified man in all the world, to convince Jews they ought not to leave Christ, and that was a most learned Jew himself, Brother Paul. Raised at the feet of Gamaliel, exceedingly zealous of the tradition of the fathers, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he said of himself. He was the one that was sent by God to write the book of Hebrews to keep those Hebrews from going back on Jesus of Nazareth. And the whole book can be summed up in the word better. If you want one word to remember Hebrews by, it's better. Jesus is better than. First three verses of the book, the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels, the next two chapters. And today we'll study the fact that Jesus is better than Moses. Paul takes everything sacred and important to those Jews and says Jesus is better and proves it to them with the strongest, clearest logic and persuasive writing found in the Word of God. There's little history in the book of Hebrews. It is argument upon argument to convince these Jews of the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't love Christ this morning, there's a bar out there where you can have some orange juice and bacon and eggs. Feed your belly. But if you love Christ, that's what we're here to worship this morning. And there is no greater book in the Bible than the book of Hebrews to learn about a man named Jesus who was once made lower than the angels. Yes, once men spit on him. Yes, once men pulled his hair. Yes, once men stripped him naked and hung him on a cross when he was made lower than the angels. But I want to tell you that today the Jesus I worship is seated at the right hand of God far above all. I like those three words. Far above all principalities and powers. Ephesians chapter 1. That's the Jesus we worship. That's the Jesus Paul is trying to convince us of in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1. Verse 1 starts the argument. You Jews. To the Hebrews. You Jews. God spoke to our fathers in the Old Testament by prophets. Verse 2. God has spoken to us By His Son. Which would you prefer? And then He gives you seven little phrases that describe that Son. Why, this is the Son that made the world, verse 2. This is the Son, according to verse 3, that upholds all things by the word of His power. This is the Son that sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Which would you prefer? Prophets or Jesus? Old Testament or New Testament? first argument is one. Jesus is better than the prophets. In verse 4, we take up the angels. Now remember, why does Paul have to deal with angels and why does he spend two chapters dealing with angels? Because the law of God was given to the nation of Israel by, you guessed it, angels. On Mount Sinai, God came down with His angels and they gave the law to the people. Acts 7.53, Galatians 3.19. The law was given by the disposition of angels. And so see, Paul's appealing to the prophets. And once he wins that argument, he appeals to the next level of authority and that would be angelic beings. The Jews would say, well, it wasn't just prophets that gave us the Old Testament worship. God sent it by angels. Now take that, Paul. So Paul takes care of that, beginning in verse 4, running all the way to the end of chapter 2 in some of the most beautiful language in Scripture. When he says in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now this is a name that Jesus obtained by inheritance. And what is that name? Son. Verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? Question mark. To what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son? Now Paul just asked the question, can you imagine a believing Hebrew? No. He would never say that to an angel. The Hebrew would say to himself, and there Paul has them, on the mat, with both shoulder blades touching. Jesus is better than the angels. And he goes on to describe why he is better. Verse 5, he's God's son. Verse 6, the angels of God had to worship him. Now what is greater, those that do the worshiping or the one worshiped? This is logic. If your mind's not logical, you can't follow it. But our minds are logical. What's greater, the one worshiped or the one doing the worshiping? That's the argument of verse 6. Verse 7, who maketh his angels? Jesus Christ made them. What's greater? The angel or the one who made the angels? Because remember, he's already established that the Son made the worlds. The Son created everything and upholds all things by his power. Verse 8. The Son God calls. O God. This is the strongest verse in all the scriptures to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. Where God says to the Son, and all these words are in the text, O God. Now listen, you want to compare angels to this being we're talking about? Well, if that's not enough, Paul keeps going. He says in verse 10, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. Still talking about Jesus the Son. He laid the foundation of the earth. In verse 13, Paul asks another rhetorical question. To which of the angels said he at any time... Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Hebrew again has to answer the question since Paul doesn't answer it. What angel did God ever say, Sit on my right hand until I crush all your enemies and make them your footstool? No angel ever heard those words. And then it goes on to say in the last verse, Why the angels, all they are, are servants for the ones that will have salvation by the death of that son. This is simple. This is ABCs of our Christian faith in Hebrews. Hebrews is not deep. deep. If you remember to whom it is written, and if you remember the purpose for the writing, it is to prove that those under the New Testament ought not to desire to go back into the Old Testament. Those who have heard the Gospel ought not to love the law. Those who have heard Jesus Christ speak ought not to want to go back to the prophets. Those who have had the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper ought not to want to go back to the sacrifices and the carnal washings and all the other ordinances of that Old Testament. Chapter 1 proves Jesus is superior to the angels by His person. He is God. He is Creator. He is worshipped by the angels. And He made the angels. That is easily accepted by the Jews. Remember, there are seven quotes from the Old Testament in in chapter 1. The Jews love ministers who quote from the Old Testament. Paul does it well he starts off with seven quotes proving that Jesus the Son is greater than the prophets and the angels. But now, in chapter 2, he takes up a thornier issue, a more difficult issue. And that issue is, why did we see him walking around down here like a man and hanging on a cross and dying? Angels don't die. Angels cannot die. They know that from Luke 20 and verse 36. Why did we have to... Why was he so pitiful when he was here in this world? Why was Jesus so lowly when He was here in this world? Paul deals with that—the humiliation of Jesus Christ in, Luke, in Hebrews chapter two. But as you'll recall, last Sunday I started up with the first verse of chapter two, and we didn't get too far in the next fifteen minutes. But emphasizing the word "therefore," what is the word "therefore"? Therefore, He's drawing a conclusion. If we say A plus B equals C, and A plus D equals C, therefore C, B equals D. That's logic. We use it all the time. You're supposed to be learning that in school. About the, what is it, the seventh or eighth grade where you start learning some of your first rules of algebra. And then in geometry, you're learning all your theorems and your proofs. If A plus B equals C, if A plus D equals C, therefore, B equals D. You're drawing a conclusion from arguments already presented. Chapter 2, verse 1 is drawing a conclusion from arguments already presented. For those of you who are going to buy the Bible software Godspeed, you want to do something exciting? Go home. Hit F for find. Type in therefore, space, wherefore. And see what it did. And limit that to the book of Hebrews. Say, find Hebrews, therefore, and wherefore. And see how many times in the book of Hebrews you have Paul appealing to the conclusion of arguments. This is the most logical book in the Bible. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed To the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and what was that word? What was the word spoken by angels? The law of God given on Mount Sinai. That was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, not by angels? Does that fit? Chapter 1. Does that fit? Then he gets to verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. And from there to the end of the chapter, Paul teaches why Jesus Christ looked so lowly in this world. I mean, if all we had was a Savior who laid in a manger and cried like a baby, and who hung on a cross and said, I thirst... Wouldn't be much of a Savior. That's not the Savior we have. He did that. And then He ripped out of that grave, victorious over death, and sat down at the right hand of God, all of His enemies being made His footstool, and He has all things in subjection under His feet. That's the Savior we can worship. And that's the purpose of chapter 2. He quotes from Psalm 8, beginning in verse 6. What is man that thou art mindful of him? That's from Psalm 8. We read it last Sunday. And from that 8th Psalm, which the Jews would know by heart, how do we know that? Because in verse 6, Paul said, one in a certain place testified. Didn't even say where. Everybody knew Psalm 8. Wouldn't you like to read a Psalm that says man is going to be crowned with glory and honor and all of God's creation is going to be under his feet? That's a Psalm you could get into. They knew that Psalm. And so he lists things from that psalm, inductive reasoning. He's pulling together miscellaneous facts about man. Man's made lower than the angels. He's to be crowned with glory and honor. He's to be put over God's creation. All things are to be put under his feet. And because God said all things are under his feet, he means it. Look at verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, He left nothing that is not put under him. If you want to highlight a word in that verse, to understand that verse, highlight the word all. Because Psalm 8 says all, there's nothing that is not under the feet of men. But now please notice that last sentence of verse 8. This is enough to shout and jump for. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Paul's pulling all this Old Testament information the Jews well understand, well know the letter of, but they don't know the application of. He's pulling it in. Man is going to have all things in subjection under his feet. And because he said all, nothing is accepted. But we don't see all things under the feet of man. He's left the Jews with a dilemma. What does Psalm 8 mean? Look at verse 9. But we See, Jesus. Does He fit the bill? Does Jesus fit the bill of Psalm 8? We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. You Hebrews, this is why He was fulfilling Psalm 8. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He had to die to be a Savior and to put away sins. The Jews knew that. There's no, there is no purging under the law except with the shedding of blood and the giving of life. Something has to die. He had to be made lower than the angels to suffer death. And we see this Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Notice how he's pulling back the logic of Psalm 8 to prove that Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. Now, why did Jesus have to suffer death? That's the rest of the chapter. Because he had to take on the nature of his brethren. Verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. He had to take on their nature. Verse 16 tells us he couldn't become an angel because if an angel can't die, first of all, and second of all, if an angel did die, it couldn't save men because God has a very strict legal system. If a man sins, then a perfect man must die in order to be a substitutionary atonement for that man that sinned. He goes on to prove all this through the second half of this chap, second chapter of Hebrews. And he comes down to the 17th and the 18th verses, and he says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. It behooved Jesus to be made lower than the angels and to become like us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. You know, the Catholics are sort of on the right track when they say, You ought to pray to Mary. Because God is of such extreme justice that he can't overlook your iniquities. But if you pray to Mary, she can go plead, you know, a mother's tenderness, and she can go plead that tenderness with God. Isn't that how Catholics reason? They're on the right track, sort of. God wouldn't be a very good high priest. Because he's God. How would an infinitely perfect being ever put up with us? Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Isn't that beautiful? He's God and man. There's one mediator between God and man. Mary has no authority with God. Jesus Christ has it because he is our high priest. Neither is the Pope of Rome, but Jesus Christ is our High Priest. Verse 18, For in that He Himself hath suffered being tempted, He is able to succor, that is to comfort, help, and aid them that are tempted. Two reasons why Jesus is a great High Priest. He's both God and man. Isn't that the kind of representative you want? And second of all, He was tempted just like you were. And because He was just like you are. And because He was tempted just like you are, He's able to feel your pain, comfort you, help you, and relieve you. Wherefore, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Wherefore, what's my favorite word in chapter 3? Maybe not this one. There's more to come. Wherefore? He's built his case. He's ending angels now. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest. He's just proved what a priest he is. Could you have a better priest? No way. No way. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Notice, they're believers. Our profession. can But consider it. Don't just do away with Jesus of Nazareth and run back to that Old Testament. Consider Him as a result of what I've already set out before you in the first two chapters. Wherefore, it means the very same thing as therefore. Therefore and wherefore are both concluding words that are concluding an argument drawn from things already said. Wherefore, because of what I've already told you, Consider this man, Christ Jesus, who is our Apostle and High Priest. I have 20 references here on the word consider. I don't have time to do that this morning. Brethren, God calls us to consider things. It is not enough for you to come and warm that chair you're sitting on. And let my words run through your ears. And as soon as it's over, to forget it and go live your life without regard to what you've heard. Isn't that what we started out chapter 2 with? Therefore we ought to give thee more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. There, chapter 3 begins with, Wherefore let us consider. These are things you need to stop about. Stop. Reflect upon. Think about. Meditate. Muse. Prove, question, evaluate, analyze. These are the most important things in this universe. And I feel like I'm preaching to trees. Because I know your flesh like I know mine. These are the most important things in the universe. But how many people in this room really believe that? If you believe it, you'd be living it. I'm not saying you don't live it. I'm just saying, can we live more of it? These are the most important things in the universe, brethren. We ought to consider them. How are we treating this great high priest? How are we listening to this great apostle, capital A, called Jesus Christ? He is. We have made a profession, every one of you that have been baptized, have made a profession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is everything Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 say He is. That is your profession. Do you consider your profession? And what it means to you and do you live it? So many references to look at on considering. Remember when I preached from the book of Haggai? What does Haggai 1, 5, and 7 say? Consider your ways. You all remember that from that book, don't you? Consider your ways. You're working hard. And when you get home, you have nothing to show for it because your, the bag that you put your wages in has holes in it. Consider your ways. And the whole The rest of that book of Hebrews is to consider that the day you start building the temple again, consider from that day forward, I'm going to fill your bags. Consider your ways relative to that God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 7, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Consider what I say. Even ministers need to consider. And the Lord give thee understanding in all things. But notice what comes before understanding. Understanding does not come sitting under my preaching alone. Understanding comes hearing what I say and going home and considering those things. Talking about it in your families. Talking about it with your wives and husbands. Reading the Word of God. Praying about it. Thinking about it, I would like all of you to read two chapters of Hebrews a day. That'll get you to the book of Hebrews every week. It's going to take me at least 14 weeks to get to the book of Hebrews. That's 14 times to the book of Hebrews. That will force you to consider what the Bible tells us to do. Or is our religion a sham? If it says consider, should we consider? Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Never forget that these Hebrews were born again, converted children of God that were on the verge of falling away from New Testament religion and going back to the Old Testament under Moses, the prophets, and the law, and leaving Jesus of Nazareth. Holy brethren, I've preached to you a message on sanctification before, which is being made holy. What does the word sanctify mean? It's not complicated. It means to make something holy. To make it fit for God's use. How are we sanctified? How are we made holy? In five phases, aren't we? God chose us to be holy before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 4. Jesus Christ died on the cross to make us holy. Hebrews chapter 10 10 through 14. The Spirit of God puts a holy nature in us in regeneration, Ephesians 4 24. And then God tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God for your life. that you be sanctified. There's being made holy practically. and The Bible says, be holy even as I am holy. That's practical holiness. And then the final phase is 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And what does that say? That God will make you holy. Holy. It's W-H-O-L-L-Y. H-O-L-Y. Holy, holy. Body, soul, and spirit. We just sang that in that hymn, didn't we? Body and soul. Body and soul in the image of Christ at that day. These were holy brethren. Hadn't yet been made holy finally, but they were holy. They were partakers of the heavenly calling. The calling of God is threefold. God calls us to eternal life. God calls us to heaven and God calls us to obedience. A call is simply an appointment. Men ask, how do I know that I'm called to preach? Well, that's an appointment by God by giving the ability to do it the call to obedience. God's given you the ability to obey and He's calling you to use it and to obey. God's called us unto eternal glory by His Son, Jesus Christ. He's prepared heaven. He's called us to it. He's appointed us to that place. These people were going to be there. And this is important. We're going to get into some chapters where there's some warnings in this book that a lot of commentators like to make the book of Hebrews simply speaking to false professors of Christianity. These are holy brethren. If Paul would have just said brethren, he could have been referring to the nation of the Jews without regard to their spiritual status. But when he said holy brethren, he narrows that down to those that are God's elect. Consider the apostle. Jesus is more the apostle of the Jews than he is ours. Because he. what, what does the word apostle mean but messenger. An apostle is simply a messenger from God. So is a prophet a messenger from God. What we have here is Paul going back to the two chapters that have just gone before. Remember the first three verses of chapter 1 are Jesus being compared to the prophets. And so Paul here says, wherefore, let us consider the apostle of our faith, of our profession. He's better than the prophets or the messengers of God under the Old Testament. And then he says, let us consider the high priest of our profession, which compares him to the angels. The angels couldn't be a priest, but Jesus could be because he partook of our nature. Consider those two things about Jesus Christ. You know, the Apostle Peter called Jesus the bishop of our souls, capital B. He's like a pastor. He's a bishop. He's also an apostle. These are names and titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to compare. We enter into a new comparison in chapter 3, in verse 2. Speaking of Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Who was the great hero of the nation of the Jews, but the man Moses. I mean, Moses had all the learning and all the wisdom of the Egyptians. For 40 years, he lived in Pharaoh's house, except for a few years when he was being raised by his mother, he lived there and he learned all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And that man forsook Egypt, met with God in a burning bush, came back and showed the greatest wonders and miracles the nation of Israel ever saw by the hand of Moses. And then he led them through that Red Sea, destroyed an entire nation's army in the Red Sea, and led them around for 40 years in the wilderness, showing them continued Signs and wonders. He was a great father of the Hebrews' former faith. The Old Testament. Moses. Moses. How many times in the Gospels do we refer to Moses? Moses that. Moses this. Read in Moses. For Moses said, if you believe Moses, you should believe me. Jesus appealing to Moses because they loved Moses. Moses was their hero. I mean, they didn't just have... Washington, We have Washington's monument, the Lincoln Memorial and so forth. Moses was their man. So now we have Jesus here being compared to Moses. Now Moses was faithful in all his house. Look at Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. God is speaking to Moses, and Miriam, and Aaron. And he said, "'Hear now my words.'" Numbers twelve six. "'If there be a prophet among you, "'I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, "'and will speak unto him in a dream. "'My servant Moses is not so, "'who is faithful in all mine house. "'With him will I speak mouth to mouth, "'even apparently, and not in dark speeches.'" And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Moses was a special servant of God. God spoke to him directly, face to face, mouth to mouth, apparently. That means clearly, expressly, not in dark speeches that uh, were confusing. You read most of the prophet's writings and they're confusing. You read Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's plain. Compare it. To Zechariah, if you need something to do this afternoon. Dark speeches versus apparent speech. Moses had it. Moses was a special man before God, and God acknowledges that. There's a word I want you to pick up in verse 7. A possessive pronoun. Mine. M-I-N-E. Most important. My servant Moses is not so... Who is faithful in all mine house. Okay, back to Hebrews chapter 3. Moses was a great man. God acknowledged him as that. Verse 2 tells us Jesus Christ was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. His house. Whose house? God's house. Now, if the King James Version was being written today, that H would be capitalized. In 1611, the rules for capitalization of deity were not established. And I'm glad they weren't. It makes the Bible more interesting. You've got to think about what you're reading. His house. How do we know it's His house? Because this is a reference to Numbers 12:7, where God said He was faithful in all mine house. That's how we know. That becomes important. I mean, Moses simply wasn't a good daddy. In fact, Moses wasn't a very good daddy. If you'll read what happened on the way back from the backside of the desert when he was coming into Egypt, the Lord tried to kill him. Ever read that? Isn't that interesting? Why does the Bible say the Lord tried to kill him? Why couldn't he do it? He just made it real bad for Moses. He wasn't really intending to kill him. It just... It was apparent that his life was in danger. Remember, Zip, Zipporah, his wife, had to quickly circumcise their boys because God, because Moses hadn't done it yet. And she said, "Surely thou art a bloody husband unto me." She had to do it instead of Moses doing it. Poor woman. I hope all of you men will do it well. We have other people to do it for us, don't we? Neat, clean, and out of sight. Boy, I watched a couple of those take my little boys and put them in a straitjacket and go after them with that sharp knife, it was all I could do to stand there and not accost somebody. Put my little boys in a straitjacket so they couldn't wiggle, and then cut them. Zipporah had to do that for Moses. When it says Moses was faithful in all his house, it is not talking about him being a good daddy. It's talking about Moses being a good leader of God's house. And that brings us to the word house. What are we referring to when we use the word house? Come back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Moses was faithful in all his house. And that's God's house. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is teaching Timothy how to be faithful in his house. 1 Timothy 3:15 But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God the pillar and ground of the truth What is God's house but his church his assembly his congregation his people Was there a church Before Acts chapter 2. If the people that say that would just read beyond chapter 2 and get to chapter 7, they'd find out, wouldn't they, Brother Red, where it says there was a church in the wilderness? That was the church in the wilderness. God's people, God's congregation. That's His house. That's where God dwells. That's His tabernacle among men. He comes down and He chooses to dwell among certain men. It's called the house of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. For another proof of the same point. Ephesians chapter 3. Let's try chapter 2. Chapter 3 would be... That was a good experience. Now you can appreciate how about 1,500 years of Christians had to worship. Were you thinking about that while I was preaching? How many times did they gather in the woods, in caves, in upper rooms, in basements, in cellars, in prison cells, in the dark, to avoid being caught? Couldn't read the Scriptures. They didn't have any. Maybe the minister had a little page up there that he would preach from. My watch says 1130. What does yours say? For those of you that are listening to this tape, the power went out in this room and I've preached for maybe 15 minutes on several of the verses here in Hebrews chapter 3. The lights have come back on, so the recorder is now working. And we are basically at verse 12. For the Apostle is arguing in Hebrews 3.12 that if these Hebrew Christians are to be part of the house of Christ, they must hold out to the end. They have to persevere. Verse 6 is where we have that argument given to us. Where we read, Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? These Hebrews, though, were losing their confidence. That's what Paul's arguing against. So he says in verse 7, wherefore, then leaving the material that's in quotation marks, take heed, brethren. There's his conclusion. If to be part of Christ's house and to know you're part of Christ's house means continuing firm with confidence to the end, let's take heed to make sure we do it. Let's make, let's take heed verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That is the argument that is so important. Take heed. Take heed. That's been the warning we've covered so far, hasn't it been? Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Take heed, brethren, lest we become just like those Israelites that were in the wilderness, that were at the Jordan River, and didn't take the land of Canaan. A land flowing with milk and honey. God has a land flowing with milk and honey for everyone who wants to follow Christ firm, with confidence and rejoicing, to the end. And it isn't heaven. And it isn't in chapter 3. It's in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is so exciting to see the, the logic of the apostle in that chapter. It is The best we've had yet to see his reasoning. There is a rest that we can realize before heaven. That we can realize right now by faith that is firm and confidence that holds out to the end. But we must take heed lest there be in any of us a heart of unbelief. Now we all have a heart of unbelief in us. What does the apostle mean? The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We have that heart in us. This is speech used by the Apostle. Let's not let that heart reign in us. Let's not let that heart control us. Let's control the heart instead. We have a deceitful heart. We have a heart that wants to depart from the living God. We have a heart that the Lord said when He looked down upon the children of men, there were None that did seek after Him. They all were seeking after other things, departing from God. But we can control that heart as holy brethren. God's given us that ability. Doesn't Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 say, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We can keep our hearts, and we should do that. We must keep our hearts in submission to this Savior, Jesus Christ. We do that by considering the Apostle and High Priest of our profession. We do that by considering those Israelites in the wilderness. I would like to see you men get fired up angry over what those Jews did to the promise of God. He offered them that land of Canaan and they refused to take it. Get angry about what they did. And just realize you stand at the very same place except the land of Canaan he's offering you is far greater than what they were looking at. It is the rest of the New Testament. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. How do you harden your heart with sin? I've preached how many sermons on the delusions of deceived Christians. All those things our heart whispers to us that causes us not to obey. Remember all those? Do you remember the series? Let's look at Exodus chapter 8. Let's just pick up a couple. Couple delusions very quickly by which sin deceives our hearts. In Exodus chapter 8, who's the sinner under consideration? Pharaoh. The first 12 Chapters of the book of Exodus are dealing with Pharaoh as the great sinner. We read about his heart being hardened. He was deceived many times, and his heart was hardened. 15 is a verse that introduces deception of sin. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. This was the taking away of the frogs. I mean while the frogs were there and he had to go to bed every night with a ribbit in the bed beside him in his pillow under his body cut open his bread open his cheerio's and there were frogs they were everywhere he was thinking about letting god's people go but as soon as god took the frogs away when he... and lightning does not strike you from heaven is there within you an evil heart of unbelief that takes comfort in the respite that takes comfort in the mercy and continues on in your sin what does psalm 50 have to say about it god says i remain silent thou thoughtest that i was altogether one like unto thyself sometimes god doesn't do anything you've heard his word you know you're sinning he doesn't need to strike you with a lightning bolt and i pr- i never have prayed for god to strike someone with a lightning bolt because that's too merciful I've prayed for far better things on men than lightning if they don't want to obey the gospel. Lightning is far too merciful. That is why God did not kill the Israelites in one day. That would have been far too merciful. How would you like your entire family, every relative, neighbor, and friend to hear the words of God as truly as I live? Forty years is all you've got. And you wander around in a circle for 40 years in a desert without a tree. Why do you think Moses said, go and see the land, what the land is? Is there any wood? Did you read that there in Numbers 13? They they wanted some trees. Oh, to see a tree. Oh, to rake the leaves again. They wandered for 40 years in a desert knowing that every single one of them had to die. That is a slow, painful, torturous judgment. That's how God deals with men. And he says in Psalm 50, I remain silent. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether one like unto thyself. What does he say in the next verse? Take heed and consider that I'm not, lest I tear you in pieces. Psalm 50 and verse 22. Do you hearten your heart through the deceitfulness of God's mercy? Romans chapter 2 tells us that the goodness of God ought to lead you to repentance. But if you treasure up, if you ignore God's goodness and His mercy, and you continue in a state of rebellion and sin, Romans chapter 2, 5 tells us that God is treasuring up His wrath. He's just putting it in the treasury. And the account's growing, brethren. Continuous interest. It's growing. So that when the judgment comes, it comes in a tornado. I like a God like that who toys with His enemies. Ever watched a cat with a chipmunk? Ever watched a cat with a mouse? cat never kills a mouse right off the bat. It wouldn't be any fun. God created that cat to behave this way. That cat will chase that mouse around and toss it back and forth. Ever seen it? Slap it with its hand to try to make it run. The thing's beat up so much it just lays there Many times I've watched it for hours with cats we used to have. Toss that thing back and forth, then pounce on it and bite it in the back. Wouldn't kill it, though. Wants some life left, and it just flicks it. Come on, come on, run again. Chases after it and pounces on it. It's what God did for 40 years. It's exactly what he said in Psalm 50. Take heed and consider lest I tear you in pieces. The judgment that comes on those who ignore God's warnings is not so sweet as a lightning bolt. People have sinned, grossly. And the saints will come to me and say, why isn't anything happening to them? Why haven't they had a car accident or something and something terrible happened? That's too merciful. Why not leave that person in their ignorance? Leave that person in their sin, that's a far greater judgment. While God is treasuring up his wrath. Treasuring up his wrath. Romans 2, 5. Don't let your hearts deceive you. You say, but God hasn't judged me yet. God hasn't judged me yet. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? That means his treasury is fuller. That's all that means. If you've sinned and got away with it, all that means is his treasury is fuller. Not that you're getting away. With a thing. That's the God I serve. That's the God that Paul is appealing to in Hebrews chapter 3 because that's what happened to those Israelites for 40 years. Do you harden your heart with what I call fool's gold? Fool's gold? You say, I'm not ready to follow the Lord yet because there's some good things out here I want to enjoy. Let me enjoy them for a while and then I'll follow the Lord. You enjoyed some of them when you were a teenager. Jim Edwards enjoyed some of them when he was a teenager. Bob Hagler enjoyed some of them when he was a teenager. They're faithful today. Do you know what that is called? That's called presumption. You are presuming that you can consciously go live like we lived when we were teenagers and get away with it. We didn't really know all that much better when we were teenagers. We didn't have 1% of what you've heard in this church. And for you to go against all that you've heard, you are presuming on God. You are what the Bible calls proving God and tempting God in verse 9. When your fathers tempted me, Proved me and saw my works 40 years. Brethren, there's two ways you can see God's works. You can read his Bible and read about them. His works of judgment. That's the way I like finding out about the works of God. Or you can tempt God and prove God and he'll show you his works. Because those men in the wilderness tempted him and proved him. Would to God we could die in the wilderness. Was that a temptation? Is that a dare? What happened? they died in the wilderness. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Once God swears, for those of you who are saying, I want more time to enjoy some things in this life. Once God swears, as I live, saith the Lord, they shall surely die. There is no repentance. It is over. And the more that's been given to you, the sooner that comes. And for anyone that has sat in this congregation, you've had too much. You think that way, and God will leave you to rot. And I, for one, will laugh with Him. Because you are neglecting to obey the gospel of Christ. You did not take heed to your hearts. You did not consider the great apostle and high priest of our profession. That's what we need to be doing. How much time do we spend to consideration of this in comparison to the consideration of all other things that the 20th century mind is so preoccupied with? We need to consider these things. Verse 7 said, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear His voice. What does the word today mean in the book of Hebrews? Today, if ye will hear His voice. Now look at verse 13 and see if it doesn't shed some light right quick without going anywhere else. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. Is today one day? It can't be. How can you exhort one another daily, you know, by, day by day, while it is called today? There are a bunch of days that make up the period of time called today. Today. And this word is so crucial to the argument of Hebrews 3 and 4. But it is so simple once you see it. Today, if you will hear his voice. Because the point is, you don't have forever to hear the voice of Christ and obey. Those Jews got up early in the morning back there in Numbers chapter 14 and said, "We'll go take it. We repent. We've sinned. It is too late. Today had ended for them. Do you know what the today is? It's the Gospel. It's the New Testament. It's the the last days. Hath in these last days spoken unto us while it is called today. While we are still in the last days. Take heed, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. But exhort one another daily in those days. How many days did the Jewish nation have left? How many days did it have left from Matthew 24 and verse 37? All these things shall come to pass on this generation. They had one generation. Today. For a Jew... It was 40 years. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For us, it is the New Testament era until Jesus Christ returns. The last days that we are in. Let me prove it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It cannot be one day. It is one specific, limited period of time. But it's more than a day. We first of all know that from verse 13, which said, Exhort one another daily, while all these days are called today. And what are all these days called? But the last days. Why are they called the last days? It is the last opportunity God gives to men to worship Him. It's the ministry of Christ. When these days end, time shall be no more and will be in eternity. Second Corinthians 6.1 we then, as workers together with Him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Do you think he's got the same theme under consideration as Hebrews 3? We beseech you, brethren, that you receive not the grace of God in vain. It's exactly Paul's message from the book of Hebrews. The message of grace. Don't receive it in vain and go back to the law. Now in parentheses in verse 2. For He saith, I have heard thee, In a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Does that mean the day they read the book? The epistle to the Corinthians? Or was that the day Paul wrote it? Now Paul wrote it and he said, now is the day of salvation. But they read it several weeks later after it made its way to the church at Corinth. Was that the day of salvation? appealing to your sense of reasoning here, we are in the day of salvation. It is the time of Jesus Christ. For the Jews, it was much shorter than the Gentiles. I have heard thee in a time accepted. And in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We are not looking forward to anything. Because we live in the best that God has to offer short of heaven. And by the time you get to heaven, there is no need to take heed. This is the last time. We don't worry about the future. The Jews were always looking to the future. Because they always knew something better was coming. Because God was always saying, I'll raise up a prophet like unto Moses. I'm going to have a son. He's going to build my kingdom. His throne will last forever. I'll bring the Gentiles into it. They were always looking ahead. Now is that time. Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Jesus walked into a synagogue after his temptation with the devil. In Nazareth. And he opened the book of the law of God that was there. And he began to read. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Was that the first year of his ministry or the second? If it wasn't the second, could it have been the third? What is the acceptable year of the Lord? It is that acceptable time, spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It is the day of salvation. It is today, the gospel period. But for the Jews, it was quite a bit narrower than it is for us. It was a limited period of time. Look at Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. I made a comment a couple sermons ago, I believe it was from chapter 1, that when chapter 4 and verse 7 uses the word today, it was limiting a certain day. I still mean that, but I modify it this way, that it's limiting it to a specific period of time, but that specific period of time is not a 24-hour day. It is the day of the New Testament. That word today is the most important word in chapters 3 and 4. In both chapters. Isn't that the whole argument of the book of Hebrews? Old Testament versus New Testament. We're under a new day. We're under the world to come. Hebrews 2.5. What is the world to come? Today. The time accepted. The day of salvation. Jesus preached at the acceptable year of the Lord. Luke 19 verse 41 And when he was come near, that is, to the city of Jerusalem, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now are they hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground. And that's a geometric term. Because they pulled a plow across Mount Zion. The day. Because the day was going to run out for the Jews. When did the day run out for the Jews? But when Titus, which was to become, who was to become Caesar, surrounded that city and leveled it, their days had ended. Today! Can you, can you sense the urgency in Paul in Hebrews chapter 3? Jesus said in about 30 A.D., in Matthew 24, 37, all these things that is laying the city flat is going to come on this generation. Paul's preaching 30 years later when he writes Hebrews. They've only got 10 years left. No wonder he's putting so much emphasis today while it is called today. Because after it's called today, it's the days of Luke 19:44. When, when the opportunity is gone, it's now judgment time. Judgment must begin at the house of God. And it began and it ended. And it destroyed and obliterated the Jewish nation. Today, if you he will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of the provocation. In the provocation, in the day of temptation. See, they had a day They had an opportunity for those several months they wandered around that wilderness. We read it in Numbers chapter 13. They tempted God these ten times. They had their day, and their day ended. And when they said, we have sinned, it was too late. They were judged anyway. I wonder how many sat in that city of Jerusalem and said, we have sinned. It was so evident that God's hand was upon them. No one but a blind man could miss it. How many said, we have sinned. Too late! The day is over. Today. The ministry of Jesus Christ is the last ministry and opportunity God gives to men. We're in it right now. We are in the time where the Bible says that the ends of the world are upon us. We are in the time called the last days. Remember in Matthew chapter 21 we had the story of the householder who goes into a far country. He sends servants to collect the fruit of his vineyard. The servants are evilly entreated, so finally he says, I'll send my son. But when he sends his son, and they kill the son, what does he say? What does he do? He asks the question, what would that Lord do? He shall come with his armies and destroy them miserably. The Pharisees, it says a couple of verses later, knew that he was talking about them. The ministry of Jesus Christ was the last ministry on this earth. We're still under his ministry through his apostles and his word today. Well, we've got to remember the theme of this book. It was written to Jews. And that day is primarily the Jewish day that was to end in Luke 19.44 the destruction of Jerusalem. That is what Paul is appealing to. You have a day just like your fathers had the day of temptation. That's verse 8 in the wilderness. Today, if you will harden not your hearts, let's not depart from the living God. Do you see the comparison? The force, the weight, that if you are a Hebrew... He's bringing to bear on you. Those Jews had heard the words of Jesus Christ about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. They weren't as ignorant of it as we often are. These were the last days of the Jewish nation, the Jewish world. And there was a world to come that was the Gentile blessings under the gospel in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 13 tells us this. Here is the, one of the greatest antidotes to departing from God. But exhort one another daily. That means each of you individually considered have a responsibility toward all others in this congregation individually considered. Exhort one another, not others, but one Another daily. While it is called today. Because today is going to end when exhortation will have no value. But do it now. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Because who knows when Jesus Christ is going to return and destroy Greenville? He is coming, brethren. And the destruction this next time he comes will not be as nice as it was. In Jerusalem. This will be the final restitution, destruction, and judgment of all things. Exhort one another daily. That is why we need each other so much and we need to be daily in some way communicating one with another. Sin is deceitful. That's verse 12, isn't it? Lest ye be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But, here's the antidote. Here's the cure. Exhort one another daily. Exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It's all in verse 13. Why do we need others? Because sin is deceitful. When you sin, it deceives you into thinking you're right. The Bible, how many times does the Bible say every way of a man is right in his own eyes? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. You know, the greatest people to watch are teenagers. They think they know more than their parents forgot. They think they've got everything lined up, straightened out, clear as a bell. They know where they're going. They know what to do. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Let me quote another one from Proverbs that fits better. Every way of a fool is right in his own eyes. That's the nature of sin. We automatically think we're right. You say, but I know I'm right. That's deceit. If it doesn't match up with the Word of God, it's deceit. But I know I'm right. I don't care what you know or what you think. Every way of a man seemeth right in his own eyes. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That is why we need others. Take any practical illustration you would like, whether it's buying a home, If you take your wife and you go look at a home, you look around at it, and if it's in the place you want and it's sort of the layout that you would like, it's easy to fall in love with that home. That's the home for us. And then you bring four or five others to look at it, and they find about 15 reasons why you shouldn't buy it. What makes that difference? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. It is the pride inherent in every one of our hearts, and especially in the foolish hearts of young people. Because the Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Every wave of everything is right in their eyes. I mean what they're doing is the right way. But they're the most ignorant of all. Because God says foolishness is bound in their heart. They haven't learned yet. That's why we rely on others. When you buy a house, the best thing you want to do is to call on those who've owned houses and have them go look at it with you so that you can participate not only in their experience but in the fact that they are not under the deception of that house. They're outside, neutral, objective observers. Who, what father or mother would ever let their son or daughter make the decision on who they were going to marry without either making the decision for them or making significant input into that decision? How in the world can a person who is, quote, in love, unquote, With another person, make any judgment that makes sense. Love is blind. You learn that at an early age. Why do we need each other? I'm giving some practical examples. Why do we need each other? Because it's so good to have married people. Married people are the only ones that can pick marriage partners. That ought to be obvious. You know what a teenager will say? That's ridiculous. That's obvious. Married people are the only ones that can pick marriage partners because they're the ones that have been married. They have the experience. They can see right through some of the riffraff and scraps that come home all in the name of, he's my beau. Why does the Bible emphasize so heavily in the multitude of counselors there is safety? When we go rushing off with one of our ideas, listen, I say we, Let's not just pick on the young people. We can all go rushing off with one of our ideas. But the Bible says your neighbor can come and search you out. It's good to have neighbors like that. That's why we have a church. Whatever you're doing, a neighbor can come and search you out. Provide a check on you. Check your deceitful heart. Because we're always going to think we're right. And that's why we need to be so careful to listen to the hints and the rebuke of others. A wise man is a man who listens to others. He's always listening. If he picks up a hint from someone that something he's doing, some house he's buying, some car he's driving, some job he's at, some woman he's considering marrying, if they're giving him some hints that she might not be the best boy, he is listening because there is safety in that listening. And that's why we all need to be exhorting one another. A church that simply gets together on a Sunday and goes their separate ways which is characteristic of most churches in America, is a wasted church. It hasn't fulfilled its purpose for existence. Simply hearing a message, let me mail you a tape, we can save the rental of the room. It's to get together and look at each other's lives and exhort one other daily. You say, well, I can't see anybody to exhort today. You haven't opened your eyes. There are people everywhere that need exhort, exhorting in our congregation. That is the antidote That is why we assemble. Does it teach that elsewhere in the book of Hebrews? Hebrews 10.23 says that we ought to provoke one another unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another And so much the more, as you see the day approaching, the day when there will be no more opportunity for for provoking to love and to good works. Why do Christians assemble in churches? Why do we have a church? But to exhort one another against the deceitfulness of sin. Every one of us ought to know how to give it, give it to others. Every one of us know how to receive it. When someone rebukes us, corrects us, warns us, we ought to receive it well and be a wise man and love that man for looking out for our best interests. And we ought to be able to give it kindly and humbly. The Bible says, bear ye one another's burdens. The Bible says, if you over, if you see a man overtaken in a fault, restore him. Ye which are spiritual, restore him in the spirit of meekness. we got to do it right. We need to receive it right. That's what saves us from being like those Israelites. By listening to others and not making the hasty decision, well, since there's giants in the land, I'm going to go back to Egypt. They should have listened to a brother who was exhorting them. Let's go up at once. We are well able to take the land. There was some exhortation. It fell on deaf ears. Verse 16. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. What did they hear? I just told you. They heard the word of exhortation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. How be it not all that came out of Egypt by Moses? What does that last clause mean? How be it not all that came out of Egypt by Moses? Caleb and Joshua. Let me remind you again of these jewels called the revised version. This is the first one that came out to compete with the King James. It came out in 1881 in England. As soon as the 20-year copyright ran out in 1901, the Americans printed it. It was called the revised version here. It was called the American Standard Version in America. Watch Hebrews 3.16 in the King James while I read it here. For who, when they heard, did provoke? Nay, did not all they that came out of Egypt by Moses? This version says that everyone that came out of Egypt by Moses provoked God in the wilderness. Your Bibles say not all of them that came out of Egypt provoked. Now that's the earliest one. This is the latest one. The New International Version. taking the world by storm. Hebrews 3.16 Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? They don't like Caleb and Joshua. You know, the whole point of these last five verses is to encourage these Hebrews, there were two men back there that I do want you to look at. I don't want you to be like that generation except for two men. And these new versions don't like courageous men like that. They love the ecumenical movement where we all agree together, 599,998, that we ought to go back to Egypt. And there were two men who stood alone and they just got rid of them in Hebrews 3.16. Compromisers. Where are the courageous men? Joshua and Caleb, given by name. Verse 17, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? There's a rhetorical question. Yes, it was with them. It was not with Joshua and Caleb. They were not. God, they were, God was not grieved with them. They did not tempt God. They took heed. They listened. They obeyed. They're the examples. The rest were judged. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believe not. Yes, the answer is to that question. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And what's the point for these Hebrew Christians? If you don't believe, if you don't hold fast, if you don't keep your confidence firm to the end, you're not going to enter in. And that's the message of chapter 4 that we will come to next Sunday. Notice how verse 1 of chapter 4 begins. Let us, therefore, fear. Every chapter is designed for weekly preaching with a conclusion based on what went the week before. The conclusion is, when we look at those Israelites in the wilderness, we stand in the same situation although the stakes are higher. What will you do? I can remember as a young child hearing that story. And it infuriated me how those babies, those wimps, would listen to the ten spies' evil report and not go in and take the land. I mean, these were the same men that watched the Egyptian army drown. These were the same men that saw the frogs. They saw the firstborn killed in every home. They saw the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. They saw the Red Sea open. They saw water rush out of a rock. They saw manna come down from heaven. They saw a quail. They wouldn't take the land. It used to tear me up. And I'd say to myself, well, if I was there, I'd be right there with Joshua and Caleb. And I'd go in and take the land. That's easy, isn't it? That's easy to say that. We're there, brethren. today. Today, if ye will hear his voice. Wherefore, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Our hearts are most deceitful. God has given the cure in his church. When we stick together, warn, comfort, and instruct and remind each other of our duties. Let us not let one member in this body slip away. We are responsible for our brother. We are our brother's keeper. Don't lie like Cain and question that responsibility. Those of you that are strong, those of you that are spiritual, ought to bear the infirmities of the weak is what the Word of God teaches in Romans 15. May God bless us to see the importance of today. This period of time that we live in and that we stand before a rest that I will describe next Sunday and warn each other and take heed ourselves and consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession and hold that profession fast, firm unto the end. Brethren, let's not waver. Let's take the land of Canaan and give me the mountain with the Anakim. And I hope that all of you want to fight me for it so that we have to cast lots as to who will get to take the mountain with the Anakim. And tonight, we'll explain that to those of you who don't know what I'm referring to. May Jesus Christ be praised.